this is Looking Closer. I'm Jeffrey Overstreet, and it's summertime at the movies. That usually means dinosaurs, or spaceships, or gun-wielding vigilante heroes, and it almost always means major explosions. And yes, there has been some of that at the movies. But as I went back to movie theaters this summer, watching as uh, cineplexes tried to return things to normal, and then, well... Americans who refuse to be vaccinated end up cursing the rest of us with a summer full of, of extra waves of the pandemic. Theaters have seen reluctant moviegoers and so-so attendants and in some ways have had to continue restrictions. So that has been frustrating to say the least. Uh, but I am glad that I've gone back to the theaters with my masks and fully vaccinated because that has enabled me to see some movies that really need to be seen on the big screen. And I'm not talking about those blockbusters full of explosions and guns. I'm talking about a surprisingly rewarding calendar of films that I'm going to be thinking about when I make my top 10 list at the end of this year. That would include Michael Sarnowski's Pig, which stars um, Nicolas Cage, I have trouble pulling up the name there, probably because I'm just not used to saying that name out loud when I talk about my favorite films. Michael Sarnowski's Pig, starring Nicolas Cage as a truffle hunter who loses his pig and then has to go find the pig in the big city, sounds like a typical vigilante hero movie, uh, a sort of, I uh, like a contribution to the, the genre that includes movies like Taken, or all of those Liam Neeson movies uh, about revenge. It turned out to be something altogether different. I really love this complicated, strange, moody, and I think ultimately profound film. I've also seen The Green Knight by filmmaker David Lowry twice, and I'm going for a third viewing tonight, because there's just so much to appreciate about this film, and I cannot wait to write about it. I am waiting to write about it, though, because it's going to take several hours. It's a very very complicated film um, with so many unforgettable images. I really, really hope you get to see The Green Knight on the big screen where it belongs. And now I've seen another film like that, Leo Carax's uh, enormous musical featuring music by Sparks, and the film is called Annette. It stars Adam Driver, not someone you'd expect to find in a musical, and Marion Cotillard, one of my favorite actresses working today. Uh, Cotillard is, gosh, she's, she's up near Binoche-level greatness at this point, and she is extraordinary in this film. Driver isn't so bad himself, although I should caution you that this is a difficult film, and it's difficult mostly because of the character Driver plays, a stand-up comedian named Henry McHenry. If I had to compare... Henry McHenry to any other character, I would, alas, uh, be directing your attention back to Paul Thomas Anderson's masterpiece Magnolia and to the character played by Tom Cruise there, who often stands in front of live audiences and delivers vile, misogynistic rants and monologues. Henry McHenry is a stand-up comic who delivers, uh, I'm not sure I would go so far as to say vile, but they are bitter, uh, acidic, uh, unpleasant, deliberately provocative and offensive stand-up routines. And frankly, I just don't think they're very funny. I had a hard time believing that this stand-up comedian would pack houses the way Henry McHenry seems to do again and again. We have to put up with this guy, uh, his so-called sense of humor, the way he treats uh, his true love, uh, a woman named Anne, who is a soprano and a uh, worldwide opera star. And then we have to put up with him in his role as a father. I don't want to say too much more about the story because I don't want to spoil too much. But then again, in the conversation you're about to hear, we do talk about most of the movie Annette. Uh, my special guest today is Evan Cogswell. Uh, and I will introduce him in more detail as we get into the conversation. But I should mention that I met Evan Cogswell at artsandfaith.com, which is a discussion board that still exists on the internet, at, at least at the date of this recording, 
that has an archive going all the way back to the early 2000s. It might even reach back to the late 90s. I can't remember exactly. But it was a place where cinephiles, film enthusiasts, who also uh, embrace Christian faith, found themselves online in the late 90s, just as the internet was really opening up and people were starting their own websites. These Christians who loved the art of cinema, not just Friday night movie going, but the art of cinema, who had felt sort of lonely in their Christian communities, uh, having the passions that they did, began to find each other and plunge into these extraordinary conversations. And I was there. I was one of the first people at artsandfaith.com. And some of my closest friendships, some of my deepest, longest-lasting friendships began in that community. That's where I met Stephen Gradonis, um, Michael Leary, Steph Loy, Peter Chataway. Um, I, I know I'm leaving a ton of people out. So many, uh, so many writers whose reviews I respect and read regularly. Uh, Joel Mayward was there for a while. Lauren Wilford was there. So, so many of the names that I, I teach now in my classes about film criticism uh, were a part of that community. And Evan Cogswell was there as well. And it took a while, but I eventually figured out that he's the writer at CatholicCinephile.com. He has a particular passion for musicals. And so when I saw the movie Annette, and I came out of that film feeling... Mm, let's just say mixed feelings. Um, I, I loved some of the music. I loved a great deal of the imagery. I struggled with my um, opinions about these characters and felt a bit underwhelmed by the arc of the story. But Evan Cogswell was writing about this film as if it's, it's almost a lock to be his favorite film of the year. So I thought, how about we do an episode of Looking Closer with Jeffrey Overstreet, bring Evan Cogswell on, and take a deep dive into the movie Annette. I was thinking we would probably fill about 30 minutes with this conversation, and instead we went for an hour or more. Uh, so here is what turned out to be a master shot episode of Looking Closer, featuring Evan Cogswell. Please join us as we explore the movie called Annette. Well, Evan, welcome to Look, the Looking Closer podcast again. I should say right off the top, we've we uh, we had a recording uh, glitch, so this is our 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 second run here at this. But um, thanks for for taking the time and being willing to talk about uh, summer movies today with me. Um, uh, for those uh, tuning in, if you don't already know, uh, Evan Cogswell is, and this is an unusual combination. This is the only friend of mine I can say this about. He is a film enthusiast. Okay, that's a lot of my friends. He is a music director. That narrows things down considerably. And he is an organist. So yeah, one of a kind here as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, also, you can find uh, Evan's writing on film, which I look at frequently at uh, catholiccinephile.com. I think it may have been uh, that, that um, website name that got my attention on his writing, and I hadn't even realized, I remember this, I hadn't even realized that Catholic Cinephile was somebody I was already in conversation with um, over at artsandfaith.com. And so when I finally put those two together, I was like, okay, double threat here. I need to get to know these guys. Because like they say, keep your enemies close, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, and uh, another detail I should mention is that um, Evan has just landed at his new home uh, in New Jersey. So when you notice how eloquent and observant he is, keep in mind that he's doing this, uh, having just moved. And if you're anything like me, you are in no condition to talk about anything coherently after a move. So Evan, uh, welcome to Looking Closer. Thanks for taking some time. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Uh, uh, tell, me, tell me a bit about the move. Uh, how did it go? And oh. um, uh, did you have any traveling companions? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, uh, so it was, it was pretty fine, just two days of driving, about six, seven hours each day. Um, so I was uh, with my two cats, Juliet and Irene, which for any film enthusiasts may pick up those names, are after uh, Juliet Binoche and Irene Jacob from the Three Colors trilogy. I've never heard of it. No, just kidding. <laughs> 
one of my favorites. I probably have the the box set right behind me here on the shelf somewhere. Yep. Okay. Yeah, Ju Julie and uh, and Irene. Juliet and Irene. Juliet and Irene. Excellent. So the actress names, not the character names, right? Yes. Yeah, I had Juliet for about two years. I decided I wanted to get a second cat because I thought she definitely is a cat that gets along well with other cats and just is a little more outgoing when she has another feline companion. And I just thought, oh, what a perfect combination of names. So I named the second one Irene. Although Juliet, as a character in the Colors trilogy, is trying to get away from everybody else. So I mean, that's kind of a, a surprise there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, anybody who names their their pets after characters from my favorite Kieslowski series, I think he's still my my favorite director of all time. Uh, oh, mine as well. We are bound to get along well. Uh, in the middle of all of that, have you been uh, been making it to the movies? Yes. Um, once I was vaccinated, I started going back. The first movie I saw in theaters uh, after that was a. Uh, Minari, which was a wonderful return to the theaters. Um, Perfect. You know, with moving, I haven't seen as many films as I normally would have. Um, and also, I wasn't seeing them for the first couple of months in theaters for the couple of months of the year, but I have seen a couple of things. I saw Cruella, I saw Old, um, I saw The Green Knight, uh, and then most recently, I saw Annette. Wow, that's a good lineup. Oh, and um, I saw Pig. I should add that. Oh, Pig, right. Uh, yeah, arguably, ah, boy, I, I think at this point, uh, it's probably safe for me to say that's my favorite film of 2021 so far, although I just saw The Green Knight again, and I, I think I, Pig may have competition now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's been such a, such a surprising summer. Um, I was worried that when theaters reopened and we started getting back into a routine of movie going that the timing was going to be bad for me because summer is usually a pretty dry time at the movies for me it's it's a lot of blockbusters a lot of franchise movies a lot of superhero movies um but i've been so pleasantly surprised by how each week there's been a, at least one thing that is new that is challenging that surprises me i may not love it but I, I have come away wanting to write about just about everything I've seen. And that, that includes Pig, um, which I saw a second time, like right away within just a few days. Uh, then Stillwater uh, by Tom McCarthy, who's made some films I really admire. Um, um, Annette, which we're going to talk about today. Nine Days. Uh, I already mentioned The Green Knight. That's that's does not sound like a summer calendar uh, of movies for me. So um, have you been doing much writing uh, about this uh, this recent sort of... Uh, Not as much as I would program? like it. I threw up a couple very rough uh, first thoughts on Annette and The Green Knight at Letterboxd. Um, I hope to write a full-length review of Annette and really um, flesh out my thoughts on it soon. Well, if you're like me, talking about movies is often what helps me sort of pare things down to what I most want to write about. Uh, so, so maybe this will be helpful for you. It will certainly be helpful for me because uh, if we're going to talk about Annette, that is, um, that is a complicated, that is a complicated piece of work. And so, so is the green Knight. having seen it a second time. Now I, I have so much, I took 12 more pages of notes last night watching the green Knight again. And I just, I don't know how I'm going to boil it down to a review. You and I were talking earlier about, uh, our friend and uh, colleague Stephen Gradanis, who uh, has written like 8,000 words about this movie, and I don't think he's finished yet. So um, uh, we might have to save the Green Knight for another episode. Okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, so Annette uh, is a movie that people have probably heard of. It's going to be on Amazon Prime here right away if it's not already. Um, it's in theaters here in Seattle, or it's in a theater here in Seattle right now. So I rushed to see it on the big screen. Um, I went because I'm really interested in this director. He is a piece of work. Uh, Leo Carax has made a variety of films, some of which I really liked, some of which uh, I, I needed to go lie down after I watched them and then I just couldn't find a, a, a strong connection to them. Uh, was it was it that director that drew you to this film? Was that the most, was that the biggest draw or was it the actors or the fact that it was a musical? What, um, 
Uh, the biggest draw is that it was a new musical written directly for the screen. Um, I like Holy Motors a lot. I think that's the only other Carax film I've seen. And I love Driver and Cotillard, and I think they are f phenomenal in whatever they do. Um, so it was like all, all of the above, but definitely mostly that it was a musical. And I tr try to see whatever new musicals I can. Trying to think. there. It, it seems to be a big year for musicals. I've seen in the heights i guess i hadn't mentioned that one earlier. oh so did I, I that was very good yeah that was a that was a blast the song the songs were so i mean i guess i should have expected this with it being lin-manuel miranda but the they're they're just each song is like a book of lyrics and they're so witty and they come at you so fast um uh and i i just i want to sit down and read uh each song because there's so there, there's so much happening in each one um this film is a very different style of musical. So I'm interested in your, your take on the music for this movie, since you know a lot more about music than I do or as a, as a musician. Um, what, what, what did you think of the music for Annette? Oh, I absolutely loved it. I didn't know Sparks at all before um, this movie. Um, um, and I now absolutely want to check out their earlier work. I, um, but I, and while the lyrics, there's definitely a, simpleness to the lyrics. I don't want to say simplicity because that um, have, can have a negative connotation, but the lyrics are very straightforward, like addressing what's happening in each scene. So there's like the opening number, which is fantastic. It's, you know, I would have said that was one of my favorite scene. That is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I would have thought it might be my favorite scene until the ending scene, which I hope we have time to discuss. So spoiler alert. Oh yeah, there, there will scene. be spoilers. We're going to have to talk about this whole movie, folks. So uh, if you if you want to be surprised or um, or if you've already, yeah, if, if you want to be surprised, you might want to sign off and go watch the movie and come back. Uh, if you've seen it, just know we're, we're going to talk about the whole thing. Um, so yeah, so it starts with Leo Carrack saying, so shall we start? And uh, the brothers turn that into a riff, which turns into a song, which then turns into a, a, a chorus number, which with the main, uh, with the three main actors. And it's that sort of quasi-meta commentary that I just thought was done so well. Um, um, you can take the love duet, which they sing, we, they just sing, we love each other so much. And that's pretty much the only lyric yeah. to oh, it. Oh, oh. And, which is, of course, in any musical or opera, the love duet is always find some witty way to say for the two characters to express how much they love each other or how strong their feelings are. And this and it's what the music is doing. And because there's this quasi-meta commentary from the opening voiceover saying this is a show, turn off your cell phones, don't breathe, don't interrupt the... Um, the performance, the music, the lyrics are doing the same thing. And that's what I thought was just so, I for one, I think it's a fairly original um, approach. I mean, the only thing I, there's a little known um, off-Broadway musical called Title of Show, which does a very similar thing with its music and um, just basically making joke it's that's very much a comedy which annette is not a comedy but it's a that's like the only other example i can think of that has the lyrics that are just drawing attention to the function and the purpose of what the music and the lyrics are supposed to do and it's that quasi-meta commentary which made me um about performance show business the whole kind of darker underside of that world which made me think a lot of Mulholland Drive while I was watching Annette and then of course the other film I thought of was The Umbrellas of Cherbourg because it's a basically a darker continuation of that uh, uh, love affair that doesn't work out um, and love, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, for anyone who doesn't know, is the only musical to win the Palme d'Or. from from 1964 by Jacques Demy, who was the uh, husband of Agnes Varda. Um, right, right. That opening number is so explosive and irresistible. Um, I heard it. I heard the song for the first time on NPR's All Songs Considered, and I, I was I was I remember I was driving to work and I wanted to just bypass work and keep driving because and just keep playing the song over and over again because it was so uh 
so catchy and uh, high spirited and playful um, because they keep saying, uh, so, so may we start? And then the, the backup singers are saying, may we, may we, may we start, which is a nice little French joke. Yes. Um, uh, but the opening also reminded me of seeing the band Arcade Fire um, uh, live uh, back when they were sort of becoming huge. And uh, I remember I saw Arcade Fire at the, at the Paramount Theater here in Seattle on the funeral tour, and they did this incredible, really unpredictable, uh, surprising show. And then like during the finale of the show, they, they, they kept singing, they kept playing, they picked up their instruments, they walked down the aisle of the Paramount and out into the lobby of the Paramount Theater and finished the show there. We all thought it was done because they were leaving. And then we noticed that people were running for the exits and we all ran to surround the lobby and there the band had set up again there and we were all just one big group and they finished the show there. And I remember just thinking that was, it was such a simple thing. I couldn't believe I'd never seen anybody do it before. Breaking that convention just took things to another, another level of excitement. This movie kind of does that in reverse. It starts there with people in the recording studio and they start singing and then they just pack up and leave the studio, but they keep singing and they're walking down the streets of Santa Monica. Uh, and we're, we see Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard sort of like putting on their costumes, so to speak. Um, and Adam Driver gets on his motorcycle. Why, why, why is it? Is it like a joke that because his name is Driver, he always has to be uh, associated with a vehicle, you know, in Patterson, he is the bus driver. Anyway, um, that incredible kinetic energy of that opening scene uh, just launches things to such a level of excitement. Um, uh, I'm going to be interested to see what you think of uh, how the music sort of plays out over the course of the film, because I, I'm not as well versed in opera. I, I'm, I'm learning from you uh, as you talk about the love song, but I kind of felt like that was, that was the musical high of the movie for me. And after that, my experience with the film was a bit of, I mean, a bit of a case of diminishing returns, I guess, because I, I kept having to work harder and harder and harder to care about what was going on and to be excited about what was going on. Uh, but it seems like you had a very different experience with that. Uh, yes. I, I mean, there's an opening voiceover that says, do not breathe. Breathing is prohibited or something. And it's a, it's a joke. And I think it is foreshadowing the, types of jokes that Henry McHenry, Adam Driver's character tells in the movie. Um, but also to some extent, I was just enraptured the whole time. It just, I just, the two, it's almost two and a half hours and I just hardly noticed it passing. Wow. You, you know, we, we mentioned the, the leads uh, when we've got Adam Driver um, as a, um, we should probably sketch the premise here a bit. We've got a, yeah. a, an incredibly sort of acidic, caustic, belligerent, cynical stand-up comic named Henry McHenry. That's Adam Driver. He is in love with a soprano named Anne. Uh, and I'm not going to say her last name because I can't remember exactly how to pronounce it. <laughs> um, and then there's... Um, um, a conductor or well there's an accompanist he starts as an, an accompanist um played by simon helberg who eventually becomes a conductor and he's sort of the background character and you you can tell early on that he's going to play an important role in in this tempestuous relationship between these these two um eventually there will be a child but you can tell from the the rockiness of this relationship and the violence of of henry McHenry, at least when he's on stage doing his stand-up that this is not going to go well and that he is probably going to be the problem throughout i struggled to stick with it in part because i found his character so difficult and i found his performance style so upsetting that I, I was having flashbacks to Magnolia when Tom Cruise was on playing the playing his character in Magnolia on stage doing these misogynistic rants in front of kind of a toxic masculinity cult. Um, I was like, oh boy, here we go with that again. Um, what I'm, I'm curious, what was uh, interesting enough for you to find the story of this relationship compelling? Uh, when when I found myself just wanting to take a break from this guy, 
Um, so at first, I do want to clarify. I did not see the trailer for this. I just tr- read some, a little bit of the buzz. Mm-hmm. I knew it was a musical, and I knew Adam Driver and Cotillard played lovers. And that's about all I knew going into this. So, which really is all you should need to know. I mean, that <laughs> that itself is that's that's perfect bait. <laughs> <laughs> I one thing I really loved about Driver's performance is a, is how I think I used the word magnificently unlikable, and, it, and I think it's really a testament because I think Adam Driver generally has a pretty likable screen persona. Um, it's really, yeah. uh, it's really a, a testament to his acting ability, just how repellent a character he plays. Um, and I think there's something, even from that opening song, his mannerisms, then he's like, you can see he's already getting into character because he's again, Marion Cotillard has this huge smile during that number. She's clearly having a blast. And every, the chorus is having, singing, may we, may we, um, is clearly having fun too. And he's just kind of, has this very solemn, sullen, almost uh, scowl in that number. So even then, where he, I think he's just hinting in to what type of character he's going to play. So I was, one, I was very interested to see what Driver was going to do with the role. Two, I liked, for, even from the beginning, he made Henry's violence and jealousy apparent. Um, and I think that's a major plot point in the story. And I think he makes it clear when Henry does turn violent. Uh, I guess that's kind of a spoiler, but we already gave a spoiler warning. Um, that it's not out of nowhere. And it's how this sort of t- toxic masculinity grows into um, far worse uh, realities. So I felt very much sorry for Anne. I think her dream sequence of with the six women in the Me Too uh, sextet um, definitely um, foreshadows that too. And that's another scene that I want to just call out as just being, I think, so well done. Yeah, that that was that was an incredible uh, scene. At first, I was like, "Oh, this is going to be so on the nose and so, you know, timely and relevant," as they say. But it was so creatively done, and we've we've had this sense of menace coming from. Henry, so uh, to see that that the the danger of that sort of register finally with Anne, I think that's that's a very compelling scene. Yeah, and and I think again, talking about the meta nature of the film and how everything in it walks the line of being the performance while simultaneously drawing attention to the mechanics of the performance, um, the relationship between Han- uh, excuse me, Henry and Anne is kind of um, a quasi-generic um, um, stand-in for a lot of relationships in operas, um, or music, less so musicals. I mean, there's a few musicals, notably Carousel, which is about a similarly abusive relationship. But a lot of operas, it's a woman is in love with an abusive man or often a violent man or a violent man is pursuing some woman and trying to prevent her from being with her lover. Um, this is a, and the way the film riffs on that, develops that, or, um, or even, and the other thing I should say is the way it kind of goes to the dark side of the idealistic musical um, budding romance because we don't know how Henry and Anne met each other or why, what either of them saw in each other or why they fell in love. Those are all questions that are outside the realm of the film. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We're very unusual. And um, I guess I hadn't thought about that very much, but maybe that's why I have trouble, uh, why I have some trouble believing in them as a couple is that's, that's such a mystery. But I think what works for me about it is it's showing the darker side, because a lot of musicals, it's, especially older musicals. It's just a straightforward love story. You don't always know why. There's usually some couples who's met up. They get swept up in some whirlwind romance. Um, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which I mentioned earlier, is about that whirlwind romance not working out and settling for something safer, more secure, um, more of a... And the, it, so what Annette's doing I, what I thought it was so successful and what for me was compelling about the relationship was not the characters themselves, but the way it was uh, sh- turning around, playing with the darker underside of all those tropes and saying, um, exposing the ways 
Um, that sort of toxic relationships can turn violent, can be unhealthy. And I really just think there's something, there's a, I think there's a real mediocrity to Henry's performances. I mean, mm-hmm. I read Mike D'Angelo, whose review is excellent. There's, he has one little nitpick with the film, and I don't agree with him on this, but everything else in his review was phenomenal, was like spot on. But he says, he said the one, Mike D'Angelo said the one thing that really, that bugged him a little bit about the film, it was another case of, a uh, toxic male artist being celebrated as a great um, artist. And I never got the impression Henry was supposed to be a great artist. As I said, I think he's supposed to be an offensive, second-rate, provocative, rather mediocre uh, comic who mm. just, his following, I, I at least I got, his following is based on be, how offensive he's, being, he's known for being. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's probably true. Um... I, I don't know Umbrellas of Sherberg as well as you do. Um, I've seen it once and it's been a while. I may have even, it may even take me back to when I worked at a video store a long time ago. Um, but uh, I kept thinking about Moulin Rouge as that is another, you know, high intensity uh, romance um, with, with another suitor threatening or, another, you know, someone else in the background. Uh, who you who you find out is going to be very instrumental or very inf- influential in this relationship, but it's also very meta, right? Every the the songs are commenting on those kinds of songs. It's it's a movie about pop music. Yes. Uh, so I figured there was quite a bit I was probably missing uh, when it came to references and allusions and and commentary on the form of opera because that is not an art form I know very well at all. Um, uh, even rock operas, I I I am sort of a it takes me a while to, to acclimate uh, and to find one I really like. So um, um, the songs struck me, especially the love song, as very, very simplistic and surprisingly so, because I have just I had just seen the documentary The Sparks Brothers, and was really, really impressed with the 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 Sparks well, with the band Sparks. It's a joke that the movie is called the Sparks Brothers because they hate to be called that. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, but that movie impressed impressed me so much because of the intelligence and the um, the the specificity of the lyrics, the wit in the lyrics. They reminded me a lot of one of my favorite bands. Uh, they might be Giants, who I've been following for so many decades. I got to this movie thinking, oh, oh boy, here's here's the musical, the movie musical that Sparks has always wanted to do. And we get to the big love song and it's just that one line over and over and over again. And a lot of the songs are seeming to point out the obvious um, uh, repetitively. Is that something about the form I'm not appreciating? Um, how, did, how did you feel about the, their lyrical approach to this? Um, and I'll, I'll start by saying I'm also a fan of witty lyrics. Like my favorite musical composer is Stephen Sondheim. That's anyone who's following long enough probably knows that and who's very well known for having extremely witty wordplay, clever lyrics. Um, so the uh, simplicity of the lyrics in Annette, um, I guess I was as, as much surprised to find how well they were working for me because, um, and I think we've got to go back to what, I think it, it's just that opening song sets it up so well because uh, Carrick says, so may we start? Mm-hmm. They turn that into, they build a riff around, around that. That riff turns into a song. And all the other songs are similar riffs that are around like one or two lines. And they just, that are commenting and explaining what's going on. Well, I need to see it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know I do too. <laughs> Maybe I went in, you know, and this is an easy thing to do, but having just seen the documentary, I guess I went in with some certain expectations um, about we were going to hear the songs that these guys have been carrying around for that many years. And well, there's a lot more to the story. We've gotten so we've gotten as far as these two are in love, but it's difficult. He's a difficult stand-up comic. She's a famous soprano. Things get crowded uh, with their their two careers, and then there's a baby. Um, maybe that's why I kept thinking of the movie Marriage Story because that's similarly about two people in show business trying to make a marriage work uh, with kids and you've got Adam Driver having temper tantrums. Um, But uh, this takes a very surreal uh, different turn when the baby arrives 
And um, we now have to contend with the fact that one of the main characters in this movie is a puppet. Yes. Yeah. Tell me about your reaction. Did you know that was coming? And, no, uh, I had no idea that the baby was going to be a puppet. <laughs> what? What? Um, tell me about your your reaction to that. Uh, did was it was it easy to go along with? Um, did it was that a meaningful choice? Uh, do you think? I kept asking myself why they did that. Um, because I mean, yeah, there's no question that Henry later exploits her and uses her talent. Um, I didn't know if they did want, I was thinking maybe they didn't want to have a child actress because they didn't want to exploit her similarly. Um, but I didn't think that, that didn't really make sense for me because they could have easily, um, I don't know, I, she could have filmed something and they could have dubbed her voice because honestly a child could, wouldn't be able to, if a child could sing like that, there'd be serious questions about what sort of training or intense, um, manipulation control they've been through if a child was producing sounds like the the doll does so that's definitely you would want that's an adult there's a, the way the vo voice develops if a child can usually if a child can sing like an adult there's some sort of thing something alarming um but so but i think there was it added to this maybe because i was just caught up in the commentary um the whole that quasi-meta commentary is having the child played by a doll. Um, it somehow worked, and I will say this: I expected her to come alive and replace the doll with a human at some point. I had no idea when. Um, yeah, I guess there's sort of it, it's almost built in because we we've seen so many stories like this. I mean, right away, I'm thinking of Pinocchio. I'm thinking of the mm -hmm. Velveteen Rabbit stories in which um a an artificial character in some way not a, a non-human character in some way becomes real because they are loved right um the the strings are broken in pinocchio velveteen rabbit uh becomes real through through the love of a child here by introducing the baby as a puppet right away i think we're we're inclined to worry about control about manipulation and exploitation uh, but it also just quietly introduces this question. Well, they love each other so much. We hear that over and over and over again. Um, is the child truly loved? Uh, if so, by whom? And what's going to happen if not? Uh, and so I think I very cynically in my letterboxed notes made a reference to the Looney Tunes cartoon, One Froggy Evening, when... Uh, when this guy finds a singing dancing frog and takes him on the road and starts exploiting this, this wonder that he's seen, I kind of felt like the movie uh, followed that template for a while. Um, do you, how did you interpret that, that sort of second half uh, of, of the movie? Is this, is this another branch of its critique of toxic masculinity or of show business in general or of, how hard it is to be a parent in show business? Um, I thought it could, I was reading it initially and I do want to see it again. So I, um, of show business in general, and this, what I was immediately reminded of at that point was the musical Gypsy. Oh yeah. Sure. Which is about the ultimate stage helicopter stage mother who absolutely um, definitely exploits her two daughters. Um, um, but I, so I think for me, I would say it was more a critique of show business. And I think the first time, and I think what's part of it is so strong about the scene, the final scene where they replace Annette with an actual, with a human actress. Um, it's the first time she's calling any shots for herself because she's in, um, when she's born, she's an object of Anne's affection after, uh, I'll say it, after Henry kills Anne. Um, she becomes an object for him to exploit for to make a career. Then she's an object to the conductor who thinks <clears throat> she belongs to him because he thinks he might be her father. And the first time she's in, uh, really become, really no one's exploiting her is that final scene. And it's just this, and she's telling her father he didn't love her mm -hmm. or he doesn't love her. And I think there's something really powerful because and i think it 
throws back the whole love story. Like, how much did these two people, uh, Anne and Henry, love each other? Because, uh, especially Henry, because he's just such a narcissistic person. Does he really love his wife? Or is it just, and did he love his daughter? Because he's trying to insist he does love his daughter in that final scene. But in the, and she's raising the question, do you? And, and did he show any love to her is uh, a question that I think. So, um, yeah, so I said earlier, the first half is exploring the tropes of musicals and operas. Um, I think the first opera Anne's in is a fictitious opera they made up in this, uh, Anne Sparks wrote um, music for. But they have a poster at one point for Bluebeard's Castle, which Anne um, hmm. does, which that's uh, an opera by Bartok, although it's a myth before that. But if anyone who doesn't know the story of the opera, Bluebeard's um, famous lord, he marries his seventh wife, tells her to go anywhere in the house. Oh, don't go in this one room. She, of course, goes in the one room and um, finds the ghosts of all his murdered wives. Um, so I think that's one thing setting up what's going to happen to Anne. But also at the same time, it's there's this critique of the whole nature of opera stories because a lot, um, a lot of operas, for a want of a for for using an overused term, a lot of opera stories are problematic by, by even by standards in their time, but especially by 21st century standards of equality and representation. And I think um, Annette is like showing acknowledging that darker side through the relationship of Henry and Anne, and mm -hmm. also how that relationship plays out in the second half and belongs. Um, the long-term effects of that, which we see on Annette um, until uh, the final scene, which I blew me away. And I think I think I can confidently say will be my favorite scene uh, in any film of this year. Wow. And it's, yeah, and it's such a, I mean, the movie we've been describing it is fairly, fairly dark. I did not expect it to to go that dark uh, to, to make this su such um, a sort of, um, wages of sin kind of epic what do you what what is your interpretation of that final scene that choice to bring in a live actress it's interesting how they do it there's the puppet and then this actress appears behind the puppet if i remember right yes that's right and then they kind of like trade places and the puppet ends up lying on the floor yep and the child is talking um is that just an abstract way of representing a transformation of some kind? What, uh, how did you interpret that? Um, that I'm not sure about. I want to see it a second time. But what I do remember is she walks away from the puppet and we just see the puppet lying on the floor at, at, at the end of that scene. And I think she's, let's say she's walking away from that toxic world of exploitation that she's been growing up in. And she's um, acknowledging, I mean, she's just, She's essentially got received her own um, safety, her own type of salvation, and she's her. She's actually is now um, a little girl and not um, an object for someone else to manipulate the way you uh, control a puppet. Um, that, that's what how they brought her in. I mean, I thought it was effective and brilliant. I just technically. Um, what they were symbolizing with it, I'm not as sure of right now. Yeah, I'd like to see that part again, too. For a movie that is so visually extravagant, I think I was also surprised by the, the very simplistic, sterile environment of the prison as the finale. I expected we would head out into some big, you know, um, sort of tapestry of images uh, again, um, so it was. It was. It felt very abrupt to me to to end it there. But that really sort of hammers home the the isolation, the 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 judgment, the consequences for Henry. Um, oh. Carax is such a visual artist that um, it's kind of exhilarating to have the music doing so much work uh, alongside his imagery. What are what are, what are the images that, that are going to stick with you most uh, from this film? Um, 
definitely the scene on the yacht at sea. That's that was um, that's one that comes back quickly. Um, I think a lot of the opera designs too. Um, then other ones. Oh, the the swimming pool. I I just thought it was so interestingly designed. Mm -hmm. And then there's the scene when Cotillard singing for herself to the baby. On um, that, oh, uh, because uh, the opera singing was dubbed by a professional opera singer, but um, Cotillard sings for herself when she's not, when she's not on stage or her character's not on stage. And there's a scene there which I thought was just the whole way with she's wearing the yellow uh, bathrobe and walking around, and that the, the way that was filmed just really um, that that those images stick with me as well. There's a sequence during We Love Each Other So Much where they are walking around uh, in a field, sort of like, if I remember right, at the edge of some trees that did a lot of work for me in, in making, at least seeing them at ease together made me think, okay, maybe, maybe there is something here. Maybe she has this effect on him. Maybe them being together sort of calms him down and, you know, sort of a beauty and the beast kind of thing. Um, um, that 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 imagery will stick with me. There are some other images that make the film very R-rated that were kind of surprising in a musical like this. <laughs> but that's that's Leo Carax. He's, Leo Carax. Well, if you've seen all that jazz, you're, which is what, another one of my favorite musicals, but that also has some very R-rated images in that. <laughs> um, uh, very very operatic uh, in a sense there too. Um, yeah, the 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 yacht scene, the storm is so so brilliant. But I just I I don't know. I'll go back and watch it again. I don't know that I'm going to anything is going to top that opening sequence for me. Although he really really goes for it with that uh, Super Bowl halftime show uh, yes concert at the end. I, I just laughed out loud when I realized that the big finale live show um was was going to be at the at the super bowl or i can't remember what they called it they didn't call it the super bowl no they did and they had some other name for it maybe there was a copyright thing maybe they had to call it something else i don't know I but, would, um, yeah, that makes sense but uh that was with the the way they used drones to fly her into the show there was some pretty wild stuff going on there um uh yeah i think uh if i see it again and i probably will uh, my main reason to see it again will be just to enjoy those images on a big screen because this is this is what hurts me about it is that it's going to be on Amazon Prime and most people are going to see it there and that is not the way to see a Leo Carax film. No, um, Lovers Under the Bridge is a movie I'm not terribly fond of because the emotions of the two lovers are so so over the top and, and that. I, I'm just scared for both of them through the whole movie. Though I spend the whole movie going, get these two, Juliette Binoche um, and Denny Levant, away from each other. Um, they're going to destroy each other and probably themselves. Um, but those emotions are represented visually in that film so spectacularly with fireworks and all kinds of things. Um, uh, that's why I remember that movie so vividly. After, I mean, I probably haven't seen it in 20 years. Um, Holy Motors is just a marathon of things you've never seen on a big screen before. Um, it has a similar opening scene, right? With a, a whole bunch of basically, basically a marching band, right? Um, I think so. And, and then it plays with motion capture technology and those, those green screen suits, uh, like the one we saw so many little documentaries of Andy Circus wearing suits like that. Um, he's so playful with these vividly colored environments. And I just, I hope people, if they're going to watch this movie, will go see it on the big screen so they can get the big sound system, but especially so they can see these pictures large. That's, yes. how, they're, that's how they're meant to be seen. Oh, wholeheartedly agree. Well, um, we've seen In the Heights, uh, we've seen this. So we've got a couple of musicals under our belts this year. I'm trying to think, was there another one? I guess Cruella felt like a musical. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly had the drama of one, yes. Um, are you looking forward to Steven Spielberg's West Side Story? Yes, I'm sure it will be good. I, I'm sure he'll do a great job with it. Um, 
I think it's kind of redundant because I think the 1961 film is a very good movie. I mean, sure, it's a product of its time and casting Natalie Wood as a Puerto Rican woman was a questionable choice then, as yeah. especially now. So seeing a more properly cast one will be nice, but I'm still... The biggest disappointment about me, there are so many great musicals that have never received a big screen adaptation. I kind of wish Spielberg had tackled one of those. Do you have a favorite? Um, well, Ryan Holt and I were discussing this in Other Arts of Faith, but we wanted to see him do Stephen Sondheim's Follies. Oh, wow. Which is okay. about four aging Follies stars who um, come together for a reunion while reliving memories of their childhood and glory days. And then... Um, all the drama and the tension and affairs flare up, but it's, um, we thought that was, had the right blend of nostalgia and, you know, um, um, empathy and, you know, humanism. And they have been a really great uh, marriage for Spielberg to do. But I, uh, I just saw West Side Story for the first time. It's been a, it's been a, a gaping hole in my movie history. Uh, so I, I just grabbed a, a DVD off the library shelf the other day, the public library shelf, and brought it home. I was like, okay, I've got to do this because I've got to be ready for Spielberg. And um, I've heard him mention this movie as an influence over the years. Um, I had no idea how much Spielberg I was going to see in the original, how, how, much, how much I was going to see that I was going to be like, oh, that's where he got this. Um, even just little things, like there's a, there's a chase scene where um, a young woman runs down an alley and then darts into a dark doorway and you see a guy chase her there and he runs into the dark doorway and then he comes flying back out. I can't remember if he's been hit in the head or what. And it, I watched that and I was just like, that is exactly a stage just like a moment in Raiders of the Lost Ark where Marion is running away from one of those henchmen who's been sent to, to kidnap her and mm -hmm. she ends up stuffed in a basket. She, she ducks into a doorway. Somebody runs in after her. You hear a clang of a frying pan, I think it is. And he comes reeling back out. And I thought, man, there's even stuff from Raiders of the Lost Ark chase scenes in West Side Story. That really blew my mind. So I'm so glad I've finally seen it. And I think you're right. I think one of the big reasons to do it again is to um, give us a properly cast version. But I'm going to be really interested to see how how much he embellishes the original in order to uh, emphasize, in a back to that phrase, timely and relevant way, um, the um, the way that that story is rooted in an immigrant experience, um, because we, you know. In the Heights has already done that this year. It's going to be hard not to just relentlessly compare the two movies. Oh, absolutely. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what Sp if, if Spielberg has something, some new way to spin this in a way that's meaningful right now, or if it's just one big nostalgia trip. I'm not real sure what to expect. So, um, I am curious about one thing, because there's one big difference between the stage show and the 1961 film. It's that two songs they, for the film, they switched their location. Oh. Um, so Officer Krupke, which comes before the rumble um, in the movie, right. and then they sing cool to like, um, boy, boy, crazy boy, right? Um, get, um, and that's after the rumble, they're trying to settle everything down. Um, in the stage show, those two songs are in opposite locations. Like, um, it's um, so the leader of the Jets sings "Cool," telling them to stay cool until we get to the Rumble. Then you can let everything explode. Then, and Officer Krupke is when it comes after the Rumble in the stage show. It kind of shows they haven't learned anything from the violence, and the violence is just going to continue. So I'm very curious to see if he'll take the approach of the stage show or if he'll go with the original film and keep the song switched. We'll see. We'll see. It's coming, I think, at Christmas. Uh, yeah, who, knows, Christmas. Who, who knows what's going to happen, whether theaters are going to be locked down again or not. Uh, hopefully. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Um, so at this stage, is it fair to say that Annette is your favorite film of this year? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Wow. Okay. All right. um, with 
I'd say Inta Heights and Pig would be competing for uh, between two and three. Yeah, Pig was such such a surprise. I mean, just out of the blue, and and while it made me think of other movies, it really is its own unique uh, experience. Michael Sarnowski is a director I'm going to be watching e- e- eagerly, uh, watching to see what he does next. Uh, and just what a gift to be reminded that uh, when when he wants to be and when he has the material for it, Nicolas Cage is a great, great actor. I think Pig is my favorite film of this year so far, but I just saw The Green Knight again last night. And um, that second viewing, uh, boy, that's giving Pig some competition on my list. But it's still, still a lot of movies to go this year. Well, thank you uh, so much for taking time. Uh, oh, thank you so much, to, Jeff. <laughs> to talk about this. Um, you've made me want to go back and see it again, which was one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation. I had a feeling you would convince me to, to go back and, and, and give it another shot and see, see what I've been missing. Um, we'll have to do this again soon. Uh, oh, absolutely. It's worth talking about. Well, people can find you at catholiccinephile.com. Uh, yes. Are there any other websites you want to shout out where they can see uh, where they can see some of your work or join a conversation with you? Um, I'm on Letterboxd. It's uh, Evan City. It shouldn't be too hard to find. Um, that's um, I still, if you want to read artsandfaith.com for or contri- or j- create an account and join, enter the discussion there. It's, we definitely need new members if the site's going to continue. Uh, I need to I need to go back and sort of like go back and visit the old neighborhood because uh, for those who don't know, artsandfaith.com was where uh, Evan and I got to know each other, and uh, along with a, a long, long list of other other people who write about faith and art, um, from Stephen Gradonis to Peter Chataway to Alyssa Wilkinson, so so many of the people I read regularly now, uh, like you, Evan, um, we, we just sort of started out as a community of friends there and uh, have gone on to publish all over the place. So that's artsandfaith.com. Uh, it's one of those old style discussion boards. So it's a bit labyrinthine. It's a bit it's difficult to navigate uh, if you're new to it. But uh, if you figure out how to use that search function, you can find just endless interesting conversations and sometimes very passionate arguments about movies going all the way back to the late 90s um, when, when that conversation started. So... Well, thanks again for your time. Um, um, You're welcome. Thank you. I'm going to go go back to the movies now. Uh, we'll do this again soon. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Jeff. Well, thanks again to Evan Cogswell for joining us at Looking Closer. You've been listening to a Master Shot episode of Looking Closer with Jeffrey Overstreet. I keep planning on offering other kinds of episodes, but the conversations just keep going and lasting close to an hour, and that qualifies them on my chart as Master Shot episodes. You can find more than two decades worth of writing on the arts, especially movies, at lookingcloser.org. You can follow me at facebook.com slash lookingcloser. I'm on Twitter as overstweet. Both the writing at LookingCloser.org and these recordings are made possible by those readers and listeners generous enough to respond with donations. I know these are difficult and demanding times, and I'm always amazed when someone uh, feels so moved as to support this podcast uh, with a donation. So thank you to all of you who have kept the website alive for so long. Uh, I am very, very grateful. And I love sharing exclusives with those who support the website in our private Facebook group. To learn how you can support Looking Closer, email overstreetlookingcloser at gmail.com. That's overstreetlookingcloser at gmail.com. You can also dig deeper by picking up a copy of my memoir of dangerous moviegoing, a book called Through a Screen Darkly. Or explore my adventures in storytelling by reading the novel Aurelia's Colors, and its three sequels. Original music for this episode comes from my lifelong friend Todd Fadel, who makes up half of the band Agents of Future. Look them up at agentsoffuture.bandcamp.com. If you have questions about what you've heard on this episode, or questions about looking closer in general, email overstreetlookingcloser at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jeffrey Overstreet reminding you to look closer, and let's 
talk about it. 